I wanted us to consider verses 3 to 5 of Isaiah chapter 44. And the Lord speaks there and he says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and surname uh, him, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. At the end of chapter 43, uh, we find the Lord speaking severely to the nation of Israel. He says to the nation, Thy first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. And yet, in chapter 43, there is a mixture, a mixture uh, of uh, God's displeasure uh, with the nation, and at the same time, God's tenderness towards the nation. The fact is, God is very reluctant uh, to pour out judgment upon his people. We are told that judgment is his strange work. It's it's alien, in a sense, to God. And in Lamentations, uh, we find he doth not afflict willingly. Uh, Or, as the margin says there, he doesn't afflict from the heart. Uh, We we could almost say, uh, and I hope I'm not putting it wrongly, but we could almost say that God doesn't have his whole heart Uh, And I know it's, in one sense, maybe not 100% accurate, but God doesn't have his whole heart in judging his people. He would rather uh, that uh, men and women, his own people, and even unsaved people, turn from their sins, repent, and be rescued from going down into hell. And this theme of the mercy of God is continued into uh, chapter 44. And that word gesture on is used for Israel. And the commentators tell us that it speaks of tenderness or affection. We sometimes think of God as being severe, as being harsh, and we forget that God is a loving, a tender-hearted God. Who is like God? Who is to compare with God for his patience, his long-suffering, his gentleness, his kindness? In Psalm 25, The psalmist says, thy gentleness hath made me great. And here, uh, after speaking tenderly to the nation, calling them by this, what we might call, sweet and loving name, he says, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my blessing upon thy seed, uh, my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And then he speaks, Uh, of people subscribing to the name of the Lord and standing up for the Lord. So it's a promise here of revival. And it shows to us uh, how revival comes about. And it shows to us what are the consequences, the most desirable consequences that flow forth from a great outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And the first thing that I want us to think is this. Revival often comes unexpectedly. You don't expect it uh, after you've read verses uh, 27 and 28 uh, of the previous chapter. 
And yet God says now, in chapter 44, I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. I'll uh, give water, I'll pour water upon him that is thirsty. I'll pour floods upon the dry ground. That is unexpected. And if we trace revival in the Bible and in church history, we will see that often it comes unexpectedly. In the time of Hezekiah, there was a great reformation and the Bible says the thing was done suddenly. Great keeping of the Passover. You weren't expecting it. The nation is not as it should be. And yet, God stirs up Hezekiah. He stirs up the nation. The thing was done suddenly. And that same word is found in Acts chapter 2. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Out of the blue, we might say, came revival. And we can go forward to the time of the Reformation. In the time of the Reformation, Europe was sunk in ignorance and superstition. Uh, pardons were being sold uh, by the indulgence seller Tetzel. And you could, you could pay even to kill someone and receive an indulgence for that. And yet suddenly, God began to move in different parts of Europe. Uh, we think of uh, the man that is most connected with it, Martin Luther. He intended to be a monk. Uh, we can think also of Scottish, the Scottish uh, leader, John Knox. He also was going on to the priesthood. And, and many were either in the priesthood or intended for the priesthood. And yet suddenly a work began in Europe. Martin Luther began to search for peace with God. Tried everything by works. Uh, fasted, worked, labored, uh, almost uh, brought himself uh, to the point of death. And then he heard, the just shall live by faith. And he was told uh, that you're not just simply to believe in general for the forgiveness of sins, believe for the forgiveness of your own sins. Martin Luther was emancipated and he blazed a trail along with the like of John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli uh, and Philip Melanchthon, uh, and uh, we see what happened in England and in Scotland. God moved, and he moved in a glorious way, and he moved unexpectedly. It happened, we might say, right out of the blue. Let, let me take you forward to uh, the, the Six Mile Water Revival that began in 1625 and is said to have lasted 10 years. It began unexpectedly uh, a Presbyterian minister by the name of Glendinning began to preach the terrors of the law and his congregation were troubled the people suddenly saw their sinfulness but Glendinning didn't have a solution he preached the judgment of God he preached against sin and the people were stricken they were sorely troubled in their conscience and then the Lord graciously uh, sent preachers to them who were thoroughly evangelical, uh, one of them being a man called Robert Blair, who had been a professor uh, in the church in Scotland, uh, and another being Josias Welsh, the grandson of John Knox. Uh, and uh, as they expounded the pure and beautiful message of the gospel, the saving grace that's found in Christ, 
Multitudes were saved. And as I said, that revival is believed to have lasted for a period of 10 years. And it was the forerunner of what took place in 1859. But then we move forward into the 19th century uh, to, well, perhaps before I go there, I should cross the water over to England uh, and think of the Great Awakening in the 18th century. Uh, There was a group of men in Oxford University who were troubled, and they tried to save their own souls by good works, by uh, going out to the poor and witnessing to them. And they they, they were so thorough that they were called Methodists. Here they were, uh, and they had set times, uh, they read the scriptures, they prayed, uh, they did good works, and among them, the leader of them was John Wesley. And John Wesley went out as a missionary to America, uh, and when he was there, he was greatly troubled by a storm uh, that took place. There there were others uh, on the boat, uh, and uh, they weren't in the least bit troubled, They had peace with God. And John Wesley said he went out to America to convert the Indians. And he discovered that which he had least suspected, that he himself was not converted. God saved John Wesley. Prior to that, he saved George Whitfield. Whitfield began to preach. And suddenly, England and Wales and Scotland were changed. Before that movement of God... Uh, a a man of some eminence visited the leading churches in London. And he said from what you would gather from the minister in the pulpit, you wouldn't have known if he was a follower of Muhammad or Confucius or Christ. That's how blind the people were. The great crime amongst the ministers of the Church of England was to go outside their parish. And when God began to stir the people and ministers inside the Anglican church... Uh, came to Christ and preached outside their parish, that was a great offence. It wasn't an offence to be drinking and gambling. It wasn't an offence to be living immorally. It wasn't an offence to carry on uh, without the gospel, without a knowledge often uh, of the basics of the gospel. But it was an offence to go into another man's parish and preach about Christ unexpectedly. God moved, God stirred the people up, and a great revival took place. And then we'll come to 1859. If you read through Dr. Paisley's book on the 59 revival, you will discover that while the Presbyterian Church was now a united body, Dr. Henry Cook drove out the Unitarians in 1829 at the Synod in Lurgan, It is said that the country people uh, applauded him. He spoke for two hours. He answered his great adversary, Dr. Henry Montgomery, who had uh, been very vicious and very personal. And people felt sorry for Cook because it came unexpectedly. But Cook was ready for it. And the Lord gave him liberty. And without notes, he uh, he demolished Henry Henry Montgomery. And it said... Uh, by his biographer, his son-in-law, that it was considered not just uh, an adequate answer, but an overwhelming answer. And some of the country people, they took off their shoes when their hands were sore, and they clapped uh, with uh, their shoes. 
and Henry Montgomery withdrew. Uh, the, uh, he and his followers formed the Remonstrance Synod, which later became the non-subscribing Presbyterian Church. In 1840, uh, the Secession Synod, which had come over from Scotland because of the Unitarianism uh, in the Presbyterian body, they united with the Synod of Ulster and the Presbytery of Munster to form the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. But by 1859, and even before, a deadness had set in. A deadness. There was no expectation of an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. One minister testifies that he tried to have prayer meetings with his elders. And after the fifth or sixth attempt, uh, he, or after the fifth or sixth gathering, he was on his own. Even the elders couldn't be persuaded to pray. So that when revival swept across Ulster in 1859, it came unexpectedly. And I'll mention one other, the Lewis revival uh, that began in uh, late 1949. The conditions uh, on the island were very similar to the conditions in Ulster prior to the 1859 Revival. Now, now, what does that all say to us? If revival comes completely unexpectedly, it says to us, there is a God, and it says to us, he's very much alive. You know, the, the skeptics today love to pour scorn on God. They love to question him. Uh, they teach children that uh, we have evolved from a lower species, uh, and uh, we have antagonists uh, that, that, that go around uh, teaching against the word of God, teaching against the resurrection, teaching against the deity of Christ. And you know what? If revival comes, God will be glorified. The critics, they'll not be silenced, but they will be dumbfounded. And I believe many of them will be brought to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So my first thought is this. Revival often comes unexpectedly. But the second thought I want to bring before you is this. It rarely comes without earnest praying. Notice how our text puts, puts it. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. There's a hunger for God. A longing for God. And that will translate itself into earnest seeking after God. We will have to seek God if we want to see God moving in revival. God answers the prayers of his people. Let me take you to Pentecost. What went before it? Ten days of earnest praying, perhaps even ten days of continuous praying. Not that the same people were necessarily uh, praying and in that room at the same time, but I believe it was like a relay system. Uh, there were some praying at one time. Perhaps they went away, got a break. Others came in. They kept praying. Christ had told them, tarry. Tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And they waited upon God. They spent time before God. And Matthew Henry did say that when God's going to do a work, he first sets his people a-praying. There's almost an identical quotation 
from C.H. Spurgeon. Uh, and if I may just throw in a suspicion here, it's not a horrible suspicion. I think that Spurgeon was probably quoting Matthew Henry, and some people have thought it to be what you might call an independent quotation by Spurgeon. But the truth is, when God is going to move, when he's going to do a great work, he first does set his people a-praying. They prayed at Pentecost or prior to Pentecost, and suddenly there came that sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Let me take you back to a great revival that took place in America prior to the 1859 revival. It began in 1857, and it is reckoned that between that year and 1858, a half a million to a million people were wonderfully converted to Christ. The man that is credited with the start of that work is a man called Jeremiah Lanfear. He was a New York City missioner, and he determined in Fulton Street, in a church in Fulton Street, to start a midday prayer meeting. Now, when he started for the first half hour or 40 minutes, he was on his own. And then someone joined him, and then a few others joined him. And amazingly, before long, New York had lots of midday prayer meetings. And other cities started prayer meetings at the same time. And America, in a sense, was saturated with prayer. And people would send up notes, uh, pray for my brother, pray for my sister, pray for my son, pray for my father, pray for my mother. And God moved in answer to those earnest cries of those people. What a glorious thing when God sets his people a-praying. And perhaps I'll weary you by reminding you of what happened in Ulster. Four young men heard of what was happening in America. They themselves had been uh, converted uh, out of darkness and brought into the light, had been far from God. And they banded themselves together. They knew what was happening in America. They read different accounts of what God was doing. And they settled themselves to pray. And soon they had some converts. And soon Ulster was awash with the presence of God. The power of God came down. And you can read the accounts I suggest to you. You buy Dr. Paisley's book on the 59 revival. And you'll see how he details town after town and village after village, county after county. And tells us what God was doing at that time. If I move into the 20th century, there was something of a revival in the time of W.P. Nicholson. Uh, Prayer meetings were organized. Uh, Ulster was in danger of civil war. And then Nicholson came. What a unique character he was. Uh, I won't describe his antics to you. I never heard the man preach other than on a tape. But Nicholson, while he had some outlandish ways, had a great burden for souls. When he was over conducting a mission at either Oxford or Cambridge, uh, he used to rise at six o'clock in the morning to pray. His breakfast was set outside the door of his bedroom and very often it remained untouched and he was praying and seeking God till the middle of the day. 
And in his anguish for souls, it is said that he actually tore the sheets on the bed. Uh, That's the burden that Nicholson had for God to move. And in his first series of meetings or missions that he held in the province, 1922 to 1923, some 12,500 people were counseled for salvation. Now, Nicholson didn't allow people under a certain age into the inquiry room. He was very meticulous. And he made those who wanted to be saved stand up in the meeting. That's not easy to do. But when you're under conviction of sin and you're troubled, uh, my, you'll go to all lengths to find peace with God and to know the forgiveness of your sins. And then over to uh, the uh, revival in the Isle of Lewis, God moved in answer to the prayers of two sisters. Uh, they were the, uh, the, the early people in that revival. Uh, one was 84, the other was 82. The 84-year-old, uh, Peggy Smith, uh, I think I've got the name right, she was blind. Uh, and they believed that God was going to send Duncan Campbell uh, to preach in their church. And there were obstacles in the way. But God removed the obstacles and uh, Duncan Campbell came and he preached. Uh, The revival went on from late 49 to 1952. And in the first five weeks, while they didn't write down numbers because they felt that would be like David's numbering of the children of Israel, while they didn't write down numbers, uh, a record has been found. Uh, I think it must have been found almost by chance Uh, And don't tell me you don't believe in chance because uh, I do believe there are things that happen by chance. They're still under the sovereign hand of God uh, as well. But a note was found and it suggested that 20,000 people had been saved in the first five weeks of that revival. That was a real move of God. Uh, So while it comes unexpectedly, it shows us that there is a God It rarely comes without prayer. And isn't that something to challenge you and me? In days gone by, we had revival prayer meetings. We had men praying uh, in late night prayer meetings and sometimes praying uh, till after midnight. We seem to have dropped off from that. And in those days, many people were getting saved. We don't see anything like that in the age uh, that we are in today. So let me encourage you to pray. So much is at stake. So much is at stake that surely we need to pray. And if you've never prayed for yourself, if you're unsaved, you need to seek God and you need to seek him most earnestly for the salvation of your soul. And as God is tender towards his people, so he is tender-hearted towards those who call upon him for salvation. Uh, So the next point Uh, that I want to make is this. Revival makes for vibrant and strong Christians. Notice what it says. They shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. A springing up as among the grass. They're they're growing high. They're growing tall. uh, They're growing strong. Uh, And uh, some of the commentators have likened this to what happens uh, maybe out in the east, after a barren spell, and, and suddenly 
suddenly the rains came, come pouring down and when the hot sunshine uh, and the heavy rains come down, there is uh, luxuriant growth uh, in the field. Uh, the, the ground before this has been barren and dry. For we've had that uh, in the previous verse. I pour water upon him that is thirsty. Why is he thirsty? Because of the barrenness. And floods upon the dry ground. It's chapped, it's parched. And God says, and he's speaking in answer to prayer. He says, I'll pour out uh, the floods upon the dry ground. Uh, when you seek me uh, and cry to me, I will come down, I will bless you. And they'll spring up as among the grass as willows by the water courses. An interesting thing about the willow. It grows very rapidly. It grows very high. Uh, and I've tried to find out a connection between the willow that's mentioned here in the Bible and the willow that is used for the making of cricket bats. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find the absolute connection. But one thing, if you follow cricket, and I like cricket, if you follow cricket, some people think it's the most boring game in the world. Uh, that's because they're not really in the know about how good a sport it is. Well, the, the, the willow that is used for the cricket bat makes that bat really strong. Uh, sometimes bowlers are bowling at speeds of an excess of 90 miles an hour. And if you hold a cricket ball in your hand, it's very strong. It's almost like a stone. Uh, it's so powerful. And if that cricket ball, traveling at 90 miles an hour, hits you on the head, there is a very real chance that you'll be killed instantly. It's a very powerful thing. The cricket ball bowled at great speed. And yet... What stands in its way? Very often, it's the willow. It's the willow uh, that is there. Uh, and the, the bat is held there. And the batsman, uh, he uses his bat, the, the willow-made bat, and he strikes the ball and he can knock it right into the crowd for six runs. Strong, the willow. So you have rapid growth. You have uh, great progress. And as well as that, uh, you have great strength uh, in the converts. Uh, and you will see that uh, as you look at things, as you look at people uh, who are saved in revival. Very often, they are vibrant. Uh, they make rapid progress, and they're strong. I would ask you later on to look at the last verses of Acts chapter 2. And in the last verses of that chapter, uh, you will find the Lord at work in revival uh, and the people are continuing uh, in fellowship they're continuing in prayer they're continuing in breaking of bread uh, and the power of God is upon them they're growing strong they're just new converts but already they're showing signs of great growth and they're witnessing and you'll find that that early church when persecution came to it those that were in Jerusalem were scattered abroad and what do you think took place? They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So they're persecuted in Jerusalem. You would think, well, we can't stay in Jerusalem. We'll flee from it and we'll sing dumb for a while to see what happens to us here, to see if these people are more amenable or if they will persecute us. No, because they're strong. 
even though they've been driven from Jerusalem, because they're strong, they go everywhere preaching the word. They're witnessing, witnessing to Jew and Gentile, witnessing to friend and foe. That's an indication of a strong believer. And you will find that uh, if you think of Nicholson's converts, I remember meeting some of Nicholson's converts that were saved 50 years. They're long since gone to glory. And they were still strong in the Lord. I, a man that I know uh, died recently, and he was one of the, the Nicholson converts of his later campaigns, I think into the, the late 1940s. But that man went on with the Lord and walked with God uh, for 50, 60 years before the Lord took him home uh, just a few months ago. How strong uh, the Lord makes believers in a time of revival. He pours out his spirit. Uh, and I hardly need to refer to the time of the Reformation. What mighty men and women were raised up in the 16th century. Indeed, God so worked that people were willing to go to the stake and to die. Uh, Queen Mary, uh, the Queen of England, she hated uh, what God was doing. She was an ardent Roman Catholic and she burnt many Protestants at the stake, 288 or 289. Of that number, one was Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, who had been the Archbishop of Canterbury. And then we have the others, Ridley, uh, and uh, we have Latimer, and Ferrar, and Hooper, uh, four bishops, or former bishops, of the Anglican Church. There were 20 other, 21 other ministers of the Church of England. There were 55 women burnt at the stake, and remember, four children. Four children burnt at the stake. Uh, and those people were brave. John Bradford, who was burnt at Smithfield, passed his wife uh, with ten children, one of them in her arms, just a little babe. And the authorities thought when he would see his wife and children that he would recant. He didn't. He stood firm. Uh, he was like Hugh Latimer uh, and you remember the famous words, play the man, Master Ridley, we shall this day light such a candle as I trust by God's grace shall never be put out. God moved. God made Christians strong and vibrant in that time of reformation. He did the same in 1859. Many ministers, many missionaries, many Christian workers were raised up. The power of God was in evidence. And you know, it took a long time before that tide began to recede. We used to speak, uh, our ministers, uh, of Ulster, the last bastion of Protestant Christianity. Sadly, there's, uh, there, there's a going out of the tide today. Uh, and we, our laws are very close to the wicked laws that have been passed in the rest of the United Kingdom. And we've got to say, quite frankly, that the majority are happy to have it that way. Uh, we read in uh, the scriptures in Isaiah about the prophets prophesying falsely 
in my name, the Lord says. And then he adds, and my people love to have it so. The tragedy of Ulster at this day is that generally the people want it this way. They don't want Sabbath observance. They don't want the faithful preaching of the word of God. They don't want our stand on the issues uh, such as abortion and uh, sodomite marriage and all of those things. They don't want our stand. Generally, if, if they're not in favor of it, they have no strong convictions against it. And they will certainly not risk uh, any opposition or persecution on account of it. We've slipped and we're still slipping. And that's why. That's why we need God to move in revival. But then I want to move to another point. And I want to say that revival has profound consequences for the rising generation. Notice what the Lord says. He says, I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. We look around us and what do we see in our churches and I believe in other denominations. You see one generation, perhaps two generations missing. You go to the prayer meeting in some of our churches and the majority or very near the majority are elderly folk. I'm an old person myself, so uh, I can identify with them. But in many cases, there's grandparents there. There may be some parents there and a few young people there, but it is the older folk, and they will be carried off by death. It's the older folk who are carrying the burden of the work and carrying the burden of the praying. Uh, And we see uh, what is taking place I remember uh, Dr. Bob Jones Jr., I think it was he, uh, who spoke about how easily a church becomes apostate. You have a strong generation. The next generation is weaker. They're not so interested in the things of God. And the following generation, they have gone right into modernism, if not downright apostasy. But what happens in revival? The young people, the the teenagers, the children, uh, the older uh, ones, uh, maybe not the very old, but go into the group of the 30s and 40s, the parents, moving up to the grandparents. Well, the older generation's affected, but also, as I'm trying to emphasize to you, the rising generation. I will pour my blessing upon thy seed, or my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. That's what we want. We don't want our children growing up and turning their back on the gospel. It's heartrending. It causes heartache and heartbreak. When young people, children, when they rise to the age of understanding, forsake the house of God and forsake the message that they grew up under, And turn their backs on the Savior. How awful. How awful. I say to you that is. That's what we we do not want to see. We want to see God at work. And in revival. That is what takes place. If I may take you to. The Isle of Lewis. 
You know, many young people, uh, and one famous convert was Mary Morrison, many young people were converted. And I remember reading of uh, young people going to the home of an elderly man. He was a hunchback. And they, they, they stayed in his home till the early hours of the morning, drinking in the things of God. That man had deep, deep experience from the word of God, a deep love for the Savior. And because those young people were being saved, they, they didn't say he's an old man, uh, we don't want to be in his home. They were drawn to his home. And they sat there drinking in the things of God, feasting, feasting we might say on Christ, feasting on the word of God. And then of course, in 1859, many children were saved. There were children's prayer meetings in one school. It might even have been in this town of Coleraine. Uh, children sitting in the classroom were coming under conviction of sin. And the teacher would allow uh, the, the, one of the, the children to go out with uh, they had separate uh, boys and girls in the school at that time. He would allow another more experienced boy who knew Christ, who had been saved, he would allow him to go out with a boy that was distressed so that he might speak to that boy and help him to find Christ. It's a wonderful thing. It's a little booklet about the children of 59. Many, many children were saved. Are you worried? Are you worried about your children? Are you worried about your grandchildren? Maybe even beyond that, are you worried about your great-grandchildren? Or you're a Sunday school teacher or working amongst the boys and girls and you see them and sometimes they're inattentive and you're thinking, what's going to become of them? What's going to happen to those children? In the children's meetings, very often children come in from unsaved homes and they're going out after an hour in the children's meeting, they're going out into an ungodly home where there's ungodly influences, their friends are ungodly, and you see, what is ever going to become of those young people? What do we need? We need revival. We need God to move. And we need God to visit. And if you have a thirst, even if one has it, God says, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. There'll be a change, a mighty transformation that will come about in revival. And then the churches will be strengthened. That's the last point I want to make. The churches will be strengthened. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. People here really are identifying. They're identifying with the Lord. They're not ashamed. And that's a tragedy today when people are ashamed. Uh, they're, uh, you know, sadly, uh, many people would almost cower in the corner if somebody starts to pour scorn on the things of God. They're afraid. They're afraid. What cowards we often are when we should be brave. Revival makes people brave. They'll stand for the Lord and they'll join themselves to the people of God. You may remember what happened that is recorded in the book of Esther. Uh, at first, 
uh, when Haman was getting his way and there was the proclamation to destroy every Jew throughout the 127 provinces of King Ahasuerus, there was mourning and heartache and heartbreak. And then God wonderfully intervened through the intercession of Esther, prompted, of course, uh, by her cousin uh, that, uh, that really cared for his people, uh, Mordecai. Well, she interceded. Haman was put to death. And the decree was in essence reversed because the Jews were given permission to fight for themselves, to defend themselves, to defend their property, to defend their families. And we're told many of the people of the land became Jews. Many people converted to the Jewish faith at that time, coming from other faiths. The power of God was being felt. The name of the Lord was being magnified. And then you'll read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 of what happened at the time of that early revival, perhaps the greatest revival of all. It says, the Lord added to the church daily, uh, the translation says, such as should be saved. The margin says, such as were being saved. That's what happens when there's revival. The church doesn't have empty seats. Many churches are built in times of revival because there isn't room in this building or that building. You have to build new churches. And there's an enthusiasm, an enthusiasm, an enthusiasm for the Lord, an enthusiasm for his work, a love for his people. How wonderful, how wonderful revival is. And I'll throw in a cautionary note to finish with. And I got this from Spurgeon, not on this passage, uh, on a sermon he preached. He said that uh, when there's a real move of God, sometimes people come in uh, and in the excitement, uh, they make a profession, they join the church, and yet some of them aren't saved. Uh, and Spurgeon said uh, in a sermon I read recently, that in spite of the strictest vigilance that was exercised by himself and the officers of his church, he feared that in his membership, and it ran into thousands, he feared that there were some unconverted people. Why do I end on that cautionary note? I've been speaking of the blessing of God, the goodness of God, the greatness of God. And remember, all of this comes because Christ loved us. Because Christ died on the cross. That's the only way salvation will come. The only way that the Holy Spirit can move. Because Christ has died. Because Christ has shed his blood. Because he has triumphed and risen again. And because he too is interceding at the Father's right hand. But why do I say it to you? Well, I don't want you, inside or outside of a revival, I don't want you, to, to labor under a false profession. Wouldn't it be tragic when we speak of all the wonderful things that revival brings and the wonderful person Christ is and the beauty of being saved? Wouldn't it be tragic if you were laboring under an illusion or a delusion, thinking you're saved while you're not? Now, we shouldn't be morbid, but we shouldn't be reluctant to check 
Am I really the Lord's? Do I love him? Do I love his word? Am I eager to serve him and to please him? And if you don't know that you're saved, then there's a beautiful invitation. The Lord Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I, it's Christ, and I will give you rest. Come to him, taste and see that the Lord is good. We'll bow together in a word of prayer. Our gracious heavenly Father, we thank thee for the subject of this conference. We thank you that it speaks to us of what God can do, what we need God to do. Speaks of a movement of God. Speaks of revival and the outpouring of the Spirit of God. We pray, our God, that thou wilt move in every heart. Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. We thank you for that promise. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. We know some, O God, that after the dry spell in England, when the rain was pouring down, we're glad to step out and even get soaked in the rain. Lord, we pray that we might have such a thirst for the blessing of God. Be with us now, we pray. Uh, Bless the refreshments provided for those who stay. Bless us on our homeward journey. Spread thy covering wings around us till all our wanderings cease. And at our Father's loved abode, those who are thine arrive in peace. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.